I'm Wallace Chapman. Now this hour on Sunday morning, an Insight Local Body election special with myself and Philippa Tolley. Philippa, good morning to you. Good morning, Wallace. Yes, we'll be talking to winning mayors in the main centres and also a couple of young mayoral hopefuls who are reviewing their campaigns. And we look at the Environment Canterbury elections into the Hawke's Bay, uh, where the major issue during the election campaign was water. But first up... We have the new Mayor of Auckland uh, in studio, Phil Goff. Welcome and congratulations. Thanks, Wallace. It's, uh, it's great to be here and uh, it's great to get that really strong mandate from the people of Auckland. Uh, my, my thanks to Aucklanders for their, their faith and trust in me. Let's look at the first 100 days. What will they look like? What's going to happen? Uh, it's going to be incredibly busy. Uh, the first task, I'll, I'll be in the, the office. I don't think I get paid till the 1st of November, but I'll be in the office on Monday meeting with the chief executive, the executive leadership team, meeting with the, uh, the councillors. Uh, Tuesday, down in, in Wellington uh, for a valedictory speech. Uh, the nice thing about resigning from Parliament rather than being defeated, you get to give a valedictory speech. So I'll be reflecting on uh, on more than 30 years in Parliament. But the first 100 days in Auckland, it's going to be about um, lifting the trust and confidence of Aucklanders in their council. You know those figures in that council survey of 15% trust, 17% satisfaction. Uh, they're appalling figures. So, We've so, got to do much so better So to that, that end, you've been in talks with Rob Fife and Norm Thompson, both former Air New Zealand bosses, to work with council chief executive Stephen Town on proving uh, the council's image. Mm. What sort of message does that send the current council right off the bat, do you think? That, that the council's broken? Uh, look, I hope they'll welcome that. Uh, they did. They commissioned the survey. They saw the results of the survey, and they know that we've got to do a lot better. When you get results like that in the survey, it means either you're not doing the right things, according to the public, or you're not communicating the things that you are doing well. And have you talked to and, Stephen Towns about this? Um, I, I haven't had a long conversation with him yet You've because talked to him about it's, it? uh, I will be meeting him at nine o'clock on uh, Monday morning and that will be my introductory comment. We've got to work together to restore the, the trust and confidence of Aucklanders in their city council. We created the, super, the so-called super city and people feel that it has not delivered what they want uh, and we're going to have to work together and we're going to have to work really uh, strongly and professionally with central government to start to tackle some of the the critical issues that Aucklanders well, are really Well, let's talk about, about the main, the real issue, and Todd alluded yeah. to this, didn't he? It's fair to say the biggest issue continues to be the unaffordability of homes. You mm. now need a $180,000 deposit in yeah. Auckland Central, 100k and others. Have you inherited a city in crisis? Oh, look, there is a housing crisis, uh, and I'm sorry, the government just has to acknowledge that. 84% of Aucklanders, uh, when they're polled, say we're in crisis. What is that crisis? It's, uh, it's caused by huge demand and uh, inadequate supply. So we grew by 45,000 people last year. We needed another 17,000 houses or so, uh, and we ended up consenting about nine and a half. So every year... Uh, the shortage of houses gets worse in Auckland. That forces rents up. It makes home ownership for even young families on the average wage uh, unaffordable, so and it creates increasing a, a, homelessness. As mayor, as mayor, what will you say <clears throat> in the next within the three years to those teachers, nurses, those in professions that are getting locked out of their city and their jobs because they can't live here any longer? What will you do uh, as the new super city mayor for those people on frontline jobs? Well, well, there's some things that the the council can do directly and the unitary plan was one of them moving up and out we've yes we've got appeals uh, that's going to 
to slow the process down, but we've got to get on and do that. And we've got to build um, intensive housing along our, our major arterial routes. And what about getting stronger on that? Will you do as some cities overseas have done and bring in a subsidy for people in those frontline jobs? Well, we can't do that. How can I subsidise uh, teachers uh, who are on reasonable wages. I always think teachers could be paid more or they're an important profession, but they're on reasonable wages. What about the people that are on minimum wages that are struggling to, you know, with, with 50 to 60% of their income taken up with rent? So what do I have to do? I've, I've got to go uh, to Wellington. I've got to be pretty strong in the advocacy. Uh, I have to talk about dealing with the demand and the supply side. Uh, and part of that demand side is, you know, Vancouver recently has acknowledged, and the federal government in Canada, that if you've got a a significant source of investment money coming in from overseas to buy up existing houses mm. rather than build new houses, you're simply going to force prices and so, up. And so your late call, your late call for foreigners buying houses to be taxed 15%, uh, are you going to start pushing the government on that, Phil? Well, I, I really don't understand, and I don't think most Aucklanders understand why the government hasn't been responsive to that call. Um, you know, Australia does it right now. They say if you want to invest from overseas in Australia in housing, build a new house, do something for our community. Don't just add to the inflationary pressures on the existing housing market. Now, to me, that's common sense. And I want to sit down with Nick Smith and have a long conversation about that. I want to understand where he's coming from. But it just seems to me that that is one thing that the government could do quite quickly. Uh, And if you look at what's happening in Vancouver at the moment, it appears to be effective. But mainly, you know, we've, we've just got to work with government about how we can create more affordable housing. We used to do it. I was Minister of Housing 30 years ago. And a third of our houses were affordable. Now about 5% are. New Mayor of Auckland, Phil Goff. Thank you. It's 16 past 8. Heading to Christchurch now, and the incumbent mayor, Leanne Dalzell, beat her closest rival veteran activist by John Minto by a landslide of 60,000 votes. Ms Dalzell picked up about 73,000 votes, a strong start to her second term as mayor. She joins us now from our Christchurch studio. Good morning. Good morning, Philippa. And congratulations. Thank you very much. Were you surprised at all about the low turnout? I mean, it was 37, 37% compared to 43% for the same time in the last election. Are people a bit tired? I, th- I think there's an element of that. But also, I think uh, last time there was a, a, a stronger contest. And I think that always encourages more people to turn out. So the time before that, I think it was up to 52%, I think, when Jim Anderton ran against Sir Bob Parker. So, you know, when when you have uh, a high-profile um, and, and hotly contested mayoralty, there's always a higher turnout. But there's so much still to do in Christchurch. One might expect that people will be passionate about the city. Still lots of decisions, still lots of rebuilding to be done. The, the, the message that I got from a lot of people that I spoke to on the ground was that they, they were looking for uh, continuity and, and I guess in a city like Christchurch, stability. And that word was repeated to me over and over again. I had quite a, a strong reaction from people in terms of their, well, expressing gratitude that I was running again. They so felt stability, that we'd done... is that stability <clears throat> having you in again or is there other stability they're looking for? It's both. Um, stability in, in terms of... The the leadership that I've shown. You know, the, the previous council was divided. Um, I managed in the last term to, to, to unite the council and really build a strong team. I also worked very hard in... Um, I worked very hard to make sure that we had a... Um, 
uh, our finances settled. We focused on our, getting our insurance settled. You know, and we, we really did face quite a, a tough job in those first three years. And again, the expression that I got on the street and in the supermarkets and shopping malls was that, you know, people really knew, they understood that we'd had a hard job getting things in order and now it was time to reap the rewards. So apart from that stability, what sense did you get that people really want from you in the second term? Christchurch has still got a lot of empty sites, hasn't it? They want to be involved. You know, people have actually felt quite shut out in terms of the decision making. So shifting from Sarah, Sarah's gone now, the Canterbury Earthquake Recovery Authority, we've got Regenerate Christchurch and it has embedded in its statutory mandate uh, community engagement. So instead of objections, hearings and appeals, we have a community engagement around the future of our residential red zone, uh, places like New Brighton that really have have suffered from the impacts, not just of the earthquakes, but that has added to the to the sense of um, being left out, as it were. And then you've got areas, other areas that are not mentioned in the legislation, but Bishopdale and Wollstone and Linwood. You know, you can just see the opportunities for regeneration. So that's what people are saying that they really want to get things moving. And I've, I've got a team of people around the t- council table that I've, I've spoken to them all. They're absolutely committed to getting things done. After the results came in yesterday, you talk about of a need for more democracy, that ticking mm. a ballot paper wasn't enough. I mean, a lot of people would think that was democracy, but you've talked about taking the power back to the communities. How do you actually do that? Well, there, there are all sorts of different models, but one of the models that we've been talking about but now are going to deliver, and we're going to run a trial on this um, as early as we possibly can, but it's called participatory budgeting. And what you do is you allocate a budget to the community board, and then the community within that community board area help to decide how that um, how that budget is spent, how it's allocated. So they actually have a say about what the priorities are and how that money's going to be spent. These are models that have been um, implemented for years in other jurisdictions and that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about, actually taking decision-making out into the local community and empowering those communities to make decisions for themselves. And that sounds like quite a task. So you've got the community input and then you've got all the councillors. You think you can bring this all together and drive forward with the united front. I've set myself a really high set of goals for this term and I'm determined to succeed. Thank you very much for your time. That's the new mayor, a returning mayor of Christchurch, Leanne Dalzell. It's just coming up to 21 minutes past eight. And we're joined now in the studio by the new mayor of Wellington, Justin Lester, who comfortably beat his closest rivals, Nick Leggett and Joe Coughlin. Initial polls yesterday showed Mr Lester won by more than 60,000 votes. He replaces Celia Wade-Brown, who did not seek a third term. So congratulations, Justin Lester. Thank you and good morning. Good morning to you too. So were you surprised by that margin? You know, There was STV voting in Wellington. There was a possibility of many, many recounts, but the result came out quite quickly with quite a clear margin in the end. It was a very good outcome. Uh, we were cautiously optimistic going into the election. Uh, we, know, we knew that we'd done a lot of hard work. You know, we'd contacted 60,000 households across Wellington. I'd personally contacted about 12,000. So we, we knew we'd done the work, but we were very pleased with the outcome. You're talking about a post-election summit within six weeks. Why is there a need for that and what do you hope to achieve? Well, we've got a new council with a lot, of, a lot of new councillors as well. So I want to make sure I bring together the business sector, the environmental sector, the social sector to share their ideas, to come into council and say, look, this is what we see as a priority for the city. And we can look at implementing those over the course of the next three years as well. And you've been deputy.
Deputy Mayor up until now, though, did you not get a sense of what people wanted before? I do, but I want to test that as well. So it's not just about me, and I'm not the um, the sole arbiter of and, and instigator of ideas. I want to make sure we get other people in as well. Have you got a sense that people have been unhappy and that there's more they want to tell you? No, I think people are quite excited. I mean, Wellington's humming at the moment. We've got a wonderful city. Uh, businesses are doing really well. I mean, just walking around the city yesterday, wow, you know, the shops are full, a lot of visitors in town. I think uh, about 55% of, of all visitors to WOW this year have come from outside other regions. Uh, so Wellington's doing really well, but you know what? We can do even better. So there's more to hear from. You've also talked about putting a share an idea option online for this summit, though. You know, not a huge turnout again. Do you think there are a lot of people out there that want to share their ideas with the Council? <laughs> I think there are. Uh, and you know what? We've increased our voter turnout in Wellington for the last four elections. Uh, so I think we're actually doing pretty well. We're backing the trend in the capital city, and we've had a really energised campaign. I mean, uh, and I want to acknowledge uh, the other mural candidates as well. I think it's been a great campaign in Wellington. Um, people have turned out and we've seen a better turnout than three years ago. When you get that summit you get the ideas and the challenge then is what do you do with all those ideas? I mean there are a lot of challenges already sort of facing Wellington. We've heard housing and Auckland is in, in crisis, Phil Goff says. There are issues here with housing, there are transport issues. If you have a summit and people come forward a lot of ideas what are you going to do with them? Do you not have spending priorities already? Yeah well I do and I've campaigned on those as well. So in particular for housing I want to set up an urban development agency called Build Wellington. We want to build more homes and I think local government can see up and do that, but we need to do that with central government support as well, and I think there's a real place for both local government and central government in the space. Uh, I've got a rates rebate proposal for those seeking to build their first home, so we want to see new houses constructed because we've got a real supply issue, not just in Wellington, across the entire country, but I want to make sure that we don't become another Auckland and that Wellington's housing remains affordable. Uh, but you know what? I've, I want to test these ideas as well. I mean, there might be some tweaks and changes along the way where people said, yeah, this is a great idea, but how about you do this as well? And uh, I think that's a really good start. Do you think you've got support for that rates rebate idea? For It's for first-time home builders. Yes, um, I think there's strong support for it. So I've had really good feedback on the ground throughout the campaign and councillors have been very supportive too. You talk about resetting with central government. Is there a lot of work to be done with central government? Has Wellington not got on so well with central government? No, I think it's been pretty good. I mean, and the Prime Minister's said as much over the last three years as well. However, I want to build Also a... said Wellington was dying. And then he came back and said it was booming. And that was most recently uh, six months ago. So I think everyone acknowledges that Wellington's humming at the moment. We've seen that in, um, in the economic activity. And in fact, we're the fastest growing region in the country at the moment. So are you going to have a challenge within the council? It's been fractious in the past. There new faces, you're going to have two councillors who are standing for mayor themselves. Are you going to be able to get it to work together? Look, my relationships with all councillors has been really strong. I'm really pleased to see we've got five new councillors. I know them all, I've met them all and, and talked to them and I think they're going to do a great job and that's great because now we've got a balance of some experience and some new councillors with new ideas as well and that's the blend that we want to have for the next three years. Thank you very much for your time. That's the new mayor of Wellington, Justin Lester. It's 25 past eight. And looking to Dunedin now, where it was a heavily contested field with 10 candidates, but two-term incumbent uh, Dave Carl returns as mayor. Dave, welcome, and uh, congratulations. Thank you. What uh, is the next three years going to bring with uh, you as mayor uh, in Dunedin? I think the next three years will be, as I said, through the campaign, carrying on um, maintaining the momentum that we achieved with the, the previous council, uh, we achieved a considerable amount across the board, both in the economy and in uh, various other areas and in the community, and I just I want to maintain that. Um, obviously, uh, we've got some 
big challenges. Um, interesting listening to uh, Justin speaking about housing in Wellington. Uh, we have a housing issue in Dunedin. It's more about quality than quantity, but we, we definitely have to address that. Got some of the oldest and probably coldest housing in the country. Uh, but, of course, the, the, big, the big one um, is, uh, is the cl- climate change effects mainly affecting South Dunedin. Which is, and that was a big issue for you, wasn't it? And South Dunedinites weren't particularly fond of you. This was badly damaged uh, 15 months ago, 1,200 homes damaged. Uh, what's your vision for your area, and do you think the council's dropped the ball because this area has been prone to severe inundation for some years now? Um, it has been, um, but not much point in blaming the council for climate change effects, frankly. Um, what we know is that we can expect more extreme and more frequent storm events. That's what the, the scientists are telling us. But probably the bigger challenge, uh, as, as, as well as dealing with, the, with those stormwater effects, is um, the rising groundwater being pushed up by rising sea levels. Uh, and frankly, it wouldn't matter who was the mayor, that's going to continue to happen. So we have to deal with that. And that is probably the biggest challenge facing this city for the next two, three, four decades. Dave, disability issues did come to the fore, didn't they, in Dunedin? Uh, Lee Vandervis, long-time Dunedin councillor, he was also a mayoral candidate, uh, he told another candidate, Joshua Perry, that he's not up to the job because he has cerebral palsy. What did you make of that? Oh, look, as far as I could see, that was... um um, uh, an issue manufactured by um, between a couple of other mayoral candidates, um, um, possibly even misquoting um, Councillor Vanivis. So um, I, I just thought it was a, a, a stunt that was uh, pulled to get a bit more, um, a bit more focus, a bit more attention to another candidate. So I, I pretty much ignored it. Now, you're pushing uh, a new mission slogan, to, uh, which is uh, to become uh, one of the world's great small cities. Yep. Uh, what will Dunedin and specifically the council need to do uh, to become uh, a great small city? What makes great cities is, uh, is making them attractive for people to live in. Um, it's interesting that um, everyone wants... Um, everyone wants economic development um, and <clears throat> the, the, the simplistic way of looking at that is oh well you just get more businesses in and create more jobs which of course councils can't do on their own uh, but the important thing and we recognised this a couple of years ago when we set up our economic development strategy the important thing is to make the city attractive to the kind of people that you want to um, you need to have there so the business people and the, and the job seekers and so it's about making it the best place to live that you can and, and that's what we've. Um, that's what we set out to do. Um, and attracting bigger business, attracting business other than the university and the hospitals, uh, head offices, for example. Will that ha- can that still happen? Yes, but the, what I'm what I'm getting at is that it's important to make it attractive to the kind of people that will be in those businesses. It, it, if 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 it's um, if if you don't focus on what your lifestyle offering is, you're you're not going to you're not going to achieve your end of attracting the businesses. Mm. Mayor Dave Cole there. Thank you very much. 29 past eight. Now to two of our younger mayoral candidates who took on their older, more financially established rivals with some degree of success. Ash Holwell ran a less than $200 campaign to run for Whangarei's top job, got 834 votes. While in Auckland, mayoral hopeful Chloe Swarbrick went from zero to hero in the recognition stakes, pulling in uh, 26,474 votes. Uh, Chloe and Ash, welcome to you both. Kia ora. Good morning. 
Chloe, you first coming uh, third uh, after Phil Goff and Vit Crone. Were you uh, happy with the result? <laughs> uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I came into this with zero expectations whatsoever. So I'm happy that there are more people uh, engaged and First and foremost, it was never about me. It was about having Aucklanders see themselves as stakeholders in Auckland's future, and I think that we went a long way to achieving that. General election next year, which political parties have approached you? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not seeking to uh, make any of that public, because, again, I'm not seeking to... Really but they have approached you? Right now. They have yeah, approached there have you? Been a few. There have been a few. A few p- tempted to get on the list as a candidate for next year? Uh, I'm keeping my options open at this point. I've never considered politics as a future for me six months ago. The whole reason I'm here is because I was disappointed with the lineup that we had for the mayoralty. I'm just thinking that people have short memories, don't they? So you'll be wanting to capitalise uh, on the success right now, would you not? Uh, well, I'll be completely honest with you. Again, this was never part of a long-term game. This was uh, very much about the present. This is about Auckland being on a tipping point and needing the change right now uh, and the disengagement between people and politics and further the absolute lack of uh, knowledge of the average Aucklander about what Auckland Council actually did or how, could it, how it could affect their daily lives. So, uh, I'm And yet you didn't, make much dif- you didn't make much difference because the turnout was a bit lower. Uh, no, it wasn't lower than last time around, actually. Uh, it was higher. Uh, we're still waiting to see the special votes counted, and we will see that on Thursday. But I think I did the best that I could with my budget, which is substantially constrained uh, compared to the other top two competitors. And, Ash, you had a bit of a small budget too, didn't you? What was your goal for the election, and are you happy with how you did? Um, obviously, our goal was to get in and to get onto council. I was running for mayor and, um, and for the Orkard Award, the Central City Award. Um, but we also didn't want to follow any of the kind of pre-established rules and um, and also on, the, on a small budget to kind of prove that it was possible for most people in Whangarei because the budgets that most of the candidates are um, undertaking that are getting on are inaccessible to, say, 90 95% of people who live here. So it doesn't seem to rep- reflect a very representative kind of uh, decision-making base. And um, the and fact... Keep going. Uh, and we're close... At, uh, for Okara, which is a cool achievement, and we did gain a huge kind of following and engaged a whole lot of interesting discussion um, during the campaign. No hoardings or full-page adverts for you. Um, Chloe did very, very well regarding social media. Ash, what was what was your strategy? Uh, also social media as well, but we also tried to um, do things that were going to be um, useful for the town, regardless of whether we got in or not, whether it was a campaign. So we had a... Um, an artwork called The Mood Bank by Vanessa Crow came up and mapped the moods of Whangarei. Now, we did have some billboards. We had five artworks that um, didn't have our names on them. They were just artworks um, made by some wonderful artists in Whangarei, and that was their way of um, engaging with the election, and they were able to, they were given a chance to speak in their voice, not necessarily in the voices that um, council often listen to. Um, and I did a little bit of live billboarding where I was there, um, and we, we just... Those artworks are now going to be part of. They're going to be go up again after the after the elections. I think the council is allowing. Will be the only billboards back, allowed back up again after the elections. Chloe, uh, do you think this is? I mean, you you dealt a lot with social media, didn't you? Came a bit later on into the campaign. Uh, what? How, firstly, how were you? Were you? How did you view um, uh, the role of the media in uh, in the campaign? Were you impressed by it? Were you uh, disappointed by it? 
Uh, yeah, so I've had a number of debates with people and media about it, this, and it's relatively interesting because I'd worked as a journalist for the previous four years before leaving because I thought it was a conflict of interest to obviously run for the mayoralty and retain my position as a journalist. Uh, so I felt as though uh, the media lamenting the fact that this race was a little bit boring uh, was kind of their fault <laughs> uh, because there, having been uh, on the side of a candidate, there was a number of incredibly interesting things that could have been reported on. Uh, but further, yeah, definitely, this was initially pegged as a two-horse race, then as a foregone conclusion, and I think that that fed into a self-fulfilling prophecy in the mind of everyday Aucklanders. You didn't get much uh, uh, truck, did you, in the first uh, few months? In fact, it was only fairly recent where people started taking you quite seriously. Yeah, and I mean, uh, having been obviously at that anti-debate, which got uh, quite a bit of coverage for the way that some of the other per se candidates acted, I can completely understand why uh, those candidates who fall outside the uh, traditional, so having a little bit more money, a little bit more name recognition, uh, uh, kind of swept to the side a little bit in media coverage. But I think the point, uh, the tipping point at which I should have started getting more coverage was as soon as I did grow that base and there was that demand for me to be there. So, for example, if you had a look at the AUT and did debate, uh, if you look through the hashtag for that, uh, there was huge demand. Almost every second tweet was about why wasn't I there. Uh, and obviously off the back of that, there are a few commentators saying that the debate was relatively boring. Uh, but still, for a month or so after that, I was relatively ignored by mainstream media. Then the poll came out placing me uh, fourth, uh, and the Herald did that 23-page spread, giving me two lines. So, yeah, I've definitely got a few bones to pick, but I think that more than anything, we just really need to evaluate how local body elections run. Uh, there's so many systemic issues there. Watch the space for Ash Holwell and Chloe Thrawick. Thank you very much. 25 to 9. Cantabrians have voted for their regional council for the first time in nine years. Environment Canterbury, or ECAN, has been run by government-appointed commissioners since 2010, when the elected councillors were sacked for not delivering planning rules for water use fast enough. To tell us more about what the new democratically elected ECAN will look like, I talked to our Christchurch local government reporter, Colin Young. He says water use is a significant issue in Canterbury, and these elections have been a chance for people to to help shape decisions again. So those uh, government-appointed commissioners uh, have been in charge of rolling out some pretty significant planning rules when it comes to how water is used in Canterbury. We've really seen uh, widespread intensification of the Canterbury Plains uh, thanks to irrigation. Really just uh, you know, quite a, a change when people drive around outside of Christchurch in the countryside. This was the first time for people to get a chance to really have their say about how they feel about this, how they feel about the direction that that the environment Canterbury has taken. But not all the councillors are elected this time round either. So what shape will the new council take? That's right. Uh, only partially elected uh, regional council this time around. Uh, the government uh, retains uh, some control of the council with four appointed uh, commissioners. They're actually this time around going to be called councillors, but still appointed uh, by the government. A further two will be appointed by Ngaitahu. So all up, we're going to have uh, six appointed uh, councillors and seven elected uh, councillors. 
the government will make its decision within the next 30 days on at least uh, who some of the four appointed councillors will be. A spokesperson for uh, Nick Smith, the Environment Minister, told me that uh, they wanted to wait until after the election just to see what the makeup of those elected councillors was before they decided who they would like to select to sit around the council table there. So the government will be taking into account obviously who has been elected, but there are seven elected councillors, so they'll at least have the majority, will they, over the six appointed councillors? Yeah, you would think so. However, there have been uh, accusations of some gerrymandering by the government when it comes to the makeup of these elected ward councillors. And so if you look at the proportion of uh, councillors you know, per population for the rural wards versus those for the urban wards, the, the rural uh, voters effectively get more councillors than those uh, in the city. Uh, so the, the accusation here is that, well, look, this is the government yet again trying to exert some control over the makeup of this regional council. And actually, if you look at the way it's panned out with uh, the elections yesterday, you know, we've got in Christchurch, we have uh, four uh, ward councillors. Uh, one of these is a fishing game manager. Uh, the other three stood on the Labour-aligned People's Choice ticket with very much a clean waterways anti-intensification uh, of, of dairy farming ticket. Uh, and unsurprisingly, if you look at the rural wards, we've got uh, two dairy farmers, uh, both very involved in water issues uh, in Canterbury, and a third councillor for one of those rural wards in South Canterbury. He's the former head of an irrigation company. So the commissioners nine years ago were brought in to resolve what was seen at the time as a standoff over water allocation, not enough progress was being made. With this election, with those sorts of um, councillors being returned from especially the, the urban areas, could there be a return to what was that stalemate as it was seen in the past? Well, yeah, I guess you could look at this, the makeup of this council and say, you know, effectively that sort of situation is not going to repeat itself. And you could easily say, you know, by design, by the government's design here, because these four appointed councillors, four appointed by the government, we don't know uh, who they will be, uh, what their interests will be. Uh, but, you know, if I was a betting man, I would say there's a good chance that they'll be looking to continue on the work that ECAN has been doing of late, uh, you know, easing the way for, for further irrigation of the Canterbury Plains. And so, you know, not really a division there, maybe more of a frustrating time uh, for these four city ward councillors who uh, wanted to clean up the waterways. So there's opportunity to vote for ECAN. Did that have Cantabrians flocking to post their votes and drop them off at their libraries? Well, not exactly. I mean, the turnout was 37%, which, you know, as you, you'd think after nine years of not being able to vote for their regional councillors, there, there might have been more interest. Perhaps people you know, looked at the way the council was going to be uh, made up and they decided that there wasn't a lot of point in voting this time around. But probably, you know, a low turnout for the city council elections as well, which was mirrored exactly in, you know, the, the, the low turnout for the ECAN elections as well. That was 
our Christchurch local government reporter, Conan Young. Well, to the Hawke's Bay, and there's been a major shift in the balance of power on the Hawke's Bay Regional Council, with the majority now not in complete favour of the $900 million Rui Tanifa water storage project. Water was a major issue in the Hawke's Bay during the election campaign. There was a poisoning of 5,000 people in Havelock North and strong debate over the Rui Tanifa water storage project. One issue that particularly raised the hackles of voters was the billions of litres of Hawke's Bay's purest water being given to Chinese companies so they can sell it in China. Our Hawke's Bay reporter, Peter Fowler, joins us now. Good morning, Peter. Let's start with the um, Regional Council and the development of the water storage project. How did the cards fall with the council? Good morning, Philippa. Well, the election result as it stands means the majority on the council, five out of nine, are now not in complete favour of the dam. You know, many people said this election was an informal referendum on the $900 million water storage project, and certainly this result would indicate that you know this has been the case. The three incumbent Hastings ward councillors, Rex Graham, Rick Barker and Tom Belford, have all been re-elected on a platform of questioning whether the dam should go ahead. Now, Tom Belford is a staunch anti-dam campaigner, and he had an uphill battle against the popular former Hastings Deputy Mayor Cynthia Bowers, who was pro-dam, but he beat her by about 700 votes, and he's increased that amount. He, uh, the last election, he only got a majority of, of 15 votes or something, so he's gone up. Now, incumbent Nararoro Ward Councillor Peter Bevan also retained his seat, and he also questions the case for the dam. Now, in the Napier Ward, another staunch anti-dam campaigner, Paul Bailey, was elected for the first time. So now that takes the number of dam sceptics to five. Uh, Neil Curtin was elected to the Napier Ward, uh, along with longtime regional councillor and former Napier Mayor Alan Dick, with the former chairman Fenton Wilson re-elected, uh, with a much slimmer majority in Wairoa, and Debbie Hewitt re-elected in the Central Hawke's Bay Ward. So what do all these results actually mean for the project? Can change happen at this stage? Because a lot of decisions have been made already, haven't they? Yes, but there's actually a couple of big decisions that haven't been made yet. And I see that Neil Curtin, uh, who was on the Regional Council when the dam was first mooted and developed, has called for a moratorium on any Ruatanifar dam action until uh, the new council's got what he says, you know, their ducks in a row. Now, Mr Curtin's a seasoned politician, and, and this call will be reflecting the fact that there are enough votes now to potentially stop the dam going ahead. Because remember... The Regional Council still has not taken a final vote to commit $80 million of ratepayers' money to the dam. And, and uh, you know, the, with a 5-4 in not complete favour, it's just not a given anymore. And another interesting point is who's going to be the chairman with a casting vote, or essentially two votes, in the event of a tie on the council. And it appears that uh, it may be likely that the chair will uh, be more likely be against the dam and, than for it. So, look, water there with a storage project and lot up in the air, but there was also that big issue with the terrible outbreak of Campylobacter in Havelock North and the Hastings District Mayor Lawrence Yule was thrown on the back foot by that in the middle of the election campaign. How did he do? Well, Lawrence Hill has kept his mayoral chains. Um, he's got a majority of about 3,000 votes. I think that might be a, a reduced majority, but he's still got a, a large majority. So it appears the water contamination, contamination crisis has not reflected on him badly in an electoral sense. Um, the council has elected a George Lyons, Rob Heaps, Tania Kerr, Anne Redstone, Jacobin Poulan, Jacoby Poulan, 
Hanari O'Keefe, Sandra Hazelhurst, Malcolm Dixon, Kevin Watkins, Damon Harvey, Geraldine Travers, Baden-Barbara, Simon Nixon and Adrian Pearce. Now, um, what's interesting is one incumbent, uh, Wayne Bradshaw, was not elected. And you'll remember there was a bit of a major fracas during the water crisis uh, between Lawrence Yule and Wayne Bradshaw. Um, and so whether that had an impact on him not being elected, uh, who knows, uh, Philippa? Thanks so much for that. That was our Hawke's Bay reporter, Peter Fowler. It's 8.45. Into the voter turnout issue, and yet another poor turnout. At the close of polls yesterday, just 39.5% of the New Zealanders overall had voted. Uh, in 2013, the figure was 41.3%, and in 2010, it was 49%. The overall count is lower than last year. Bronwood Hayward is Associate Professor, Head of the Department of Political Science and International Relations, University of Canterbury. Uh, Bronwood, welcome. Hi. Hi, Wallace. Uh, well, look, the, the total Christchurch, to your city, the to- total Christchurch voter turnout this year was 37.2%. 2013 was 42.9%. Up slightly in Auckland, 0.18%, up slightly in Wellington. The question is, how low can it go before it stops being a real democracy? Well, I think one of our, your big fears is you don't want to end up in a situation like the United States faced in Ferguson before the um, Black Lives Matter right, um debates and riots where they were down to about 11% turnout because normally really low turnout reflects lots of complicated social and economic issues going on. I suppose as a Christchurch person I just have to say I note that we actually beat Auckland uh, with our turnout at 37% and given or just above and given the kind of perfect storm of um, issues that Christchurch was facing which suppressed the vote far beyond apathy, things like a transient population inequality, the feeling that they haven't got control of local decision-making, um, confusion because there were a lot of new wards. Uh, this might sound odd, but I'm actually quite um, pleased that we've at least held that position. Uh, how low can it go? Well, I think... I'm, just, I'm just thinking, Bronwyn, you'd expect issues like in Auckland, for example, extreme house prices, rentals, mm. really extreme, to galvanise younger people into voting, wouldn't you? As one candidate said, you only have yourself to blame if you don't vote. Well, not yes and no. Of course citizens have to make the effort. But it's much more than apathy and a not caring. It, this complicated series of conditions that suppress the vote, and one basic thing for... If the 18 to 24-year-old saw that they had a place in the city, that they felt that they were going to stay in that city, they tend to vote. Uh, if they're educated, you tend to vote. Uh, if you've got a bit of finance behind you, a family that reminds you to vote, you tend to vote. So um, when you've got a candidate that you want to vote for, you also tend to vote. I mean, one of the fascinating things that's happened down here, we've heard a lot about Chloe Warbrick and good honour, but also down here we've got a new young candidate for ECAN, um, Lansam, and she has had a phenomenal social media campaign um, and she's really tranced the elections with about over 53,000 votes. First time young, um, used social media, engaged a public who haven't been able to vote for about nine years. It's actually quite amazing and I think as a As a nation, both as political scientists and the media, one of the things we've got to do is actually look at ourselves. Like political scientists, we go on and on about voter apathy and we actually start becoming part of the narrative. But I think also 
Um, the media does too. I mean, we talk about, somebody said earlier today, elections being boring. We have very little coverage except at these times. Actually, some of these election issues are really interesting. And at a local community level, you see quite significant turnout. We've had community ward turnout up to 50%. Hey, Bronwyn, just just briefly, uh, got, got a minute to go, voter turnout at local body elections dropped 15% when postal voting replaced voting day, and that was in 1989. Now, some candidates have suggested a return to, to, return to single-day local body election polling would be a good idea. What do you think? Well, certainly a change is disruptive. Um, I've seen stats going the other way, actually, that when we first had postal voting, everybody's so enthusiastic, it shot up. But being great, it, but it has declined, so perhaps that was for a particular city. But, um, yeah, I think that it is time to start thinking about the way in which we put funding in and focus how to vote. It's a huge event. Uh, it's very difficult for local councils. They all do their own thing. Yeah. Ronwood Hayward there is 10 to 9, uh, the Insight Local Body Election Special. And finally, in this hour, we're going to break down and dissect what went right and wrong in the, elect- in the Auckland election with our panel of pundits. RNZ's expert in all things Auckland is Todd Nile. Here we're driving. Todd, good morning to you. Good morning, Wallace. Uh, and joining Todd is PR consultant and former political editor of the NBR, Ben Thomas, uh, and former editor of the Herald, Tim Murphy. Welcome to you both. Good morning, Wallace. Hey, firstly, my question is expanding around... Uh, New Zealand first, and I'm quite interested, Ben, in this uh, left-right split. You've got, uh, you know, the, the mayors of the main centres left-leaning, and yet you've got the central government uh, uh, strongly national. Um, what's what's the reason for that? And will that feed into election next year? Do you think? Yeah, look, I'm not sure. I think what it really reflects is that traditionally the Labour Party is very strong on the ground. They have this organisational apparatus. Um, you see it particularly in Auckland where Phil Goff was, you know, Len Brown was sort of screwed off the top of um, the election campaign machine in Auckland and then Phil Goff, uh, sorry, Len Brown was, you know, kind of removed and Phil Goff was sort of replaced at the head. But but largely the personnel and the movement and the organisation stayed exactly the same. Tim? Oh, look, I think uh, you could put John Key up for the for the right in Auckland now and you'd have trouble probably. And he might be the only one who could pull it off. Uh, it seems that they, they they strive, they search, and they get nobody who's got that kind of impact yet. Um, so I think that Ben's right. The Labour Party uh, and the left have a real lock in Auckland now. But I do think people think differently about local things. You know, it's about their parks, their footpaths. Auckland has got big issues as well. And I think people are probably more ready to listen to somebody from their community as an individual than rather going out and voting for a region-wide political brand. I think the sort of the messages that go around in local government don't work as well if there's a big brand political policy behind it. Mm. Look, I think the other thing is that uh, the National Party, for instance, doesn't tend to exert as much control over their local candidates. Um, In Auckland, it is a bit of a sort of fiefdom, you know, or or some might unkindly say retirement village for the National Party, um, where you have these kind of curmudgeonly characters who don't really like interference uh, from from a central, at a central level. You saw that with the, the, you know, sort of abject failure 
of Auckland Future, um, which was an attempt sort of, you know, vaguely directed from Wellington at the beginning to kind of refresh that brand. And there was a real kickback mm. from the And on the face of it, that had potential, you know, a well-organised big brand with, with grunt behind it, with policy, with analysis, you know. Mm. You would have thought there was a room for that. But, you know, was, the, was it the bad execution that sunk it? Was it the fact that it was a region-wide brand that people didn't respond to? I mean, it flopped even on the North well, Shore. Let's, let's look, look at some. What, what did you make of Vic Crone's camp? And we talked with Todd uh, earlier that, uh, you know, it started very, very strong, had a, had a, had a, a very strong m- momentum behind it, and he had a, you know, a really serious candidate. What do you make of Vic's uh, a campaign? I thought she came a long way, but not very far. And her issue was politics. She, she got herself schooled up really well, actually, on a lot of the issues, but she just didn't and wasn't disposed to politics. I think it's easier to probably go in on a list to the national, um, sorry, the nationwide uh, central government um, parties than it is to put yourself up as the sole solo player as a mayor of Auckland. Uh, she look. She may well, if she goes again, may well have a much better chance at it. But and do you it's think, something to learn. Do you, know? you think she might? Someone like Vic Crane has got a, another chance, Ben. I think she probably feels that she does. Um, she was suggesting that she has a future in uh, local body politics. Um, then again, we saw with guys like Greg Polino that you don't necessarily get a second shot. Yeah. yeah, and 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 look at her background. She's a you know she's a high flying executive. Is she going to go on hold for three years to have another crack at the mayoralty? Um, I think it'll be know, one I'm year to the uh, national party list, won't it? It is. That's true. If that if that was the ambition. Yeah. And then, of course, you had uh, you had uh, Bill Rolston, who I thought might have might have got in this time round, him, but Mike Lee just uh, pipped him there. Yeah, look, Mike Lee has a huge record, and uh, it was always going to be hard for Bill. Um, Lee could just tick off all the things around Auckland that he's been thoroughly involved in, and there's a great incumbency factor there. What most surprised you about this uh, about the election in Auckland? No, not a huge amount. I think uh, Vic Crone probably made a better showing than a lot of people expected. Uh, at the same time, it wasn't totally out of line with Polino's performance against Len Brown in the last election. Um, so no, no huge surprises. I think, again, uh, Chloe Swarbrick was talked up a lot, but her end result wasn't much more than a pretty significant protest vote. Yeah. Oh, I think uh, Phil really just kept the line, did what he had to do, and uh, he'll be good. He is not a low-energy uh, candidate or a low-energy person. I sat next to him at one debate, and he just comes out of his skin with passion for what he's talking about, uh, which doesn't seem to be his actual profile out there in the community. That's interesting you say that, because that didn't, <laughs> that didn't really come across as the leader of the Labour Party, but a couple of the debates I did uh, with both Vic and uh, Phil, what was, what was really pronounced was how Phil would uh, jump in there with facts and then bring it up with a personal anecdote. Uh, and and Vic really, yeah, yeah, really, Vic really came across as a, a business person and business person only, knowing the big sort of phrase, but not really sort of giving her much of herself, you know? He's had 30 years of doing right. this, of getting elected every three years. What's that, 10, <laughs> 10, 11 elections? He should be that good. But it was interesting listening to your interview with him earlier, uh, and this may be a challenge that he faces. It was all about the government. Everything he talked about was about the government. He's going to need to get out of being a parliamentarian and start being the Mayor of Auckland Council. Housing's all about the government. Auckland Council actually has a significant housing well, programme, so what's going to happen I agree. There? I think he sounded very political, and it'll be interesting to see how long it takes him to uh, break away from any Labour Party policy. Well, we've really. got a man here who's hugely experienced in central government. Uh, what, do, what do you make of, of his government stance? 
Well, he's kind of painted himself into a corner. Um, if you if you look at the actual campaigns, Goff and Crone, you, you couldn't get daylight between them, in the sense that they're both running on two to two point five percent rate rises at most, uh, no more borrowing, um, no asset sales. And so that that really leaves Goff with, um, you know, he needs to appeal to government. So he's been talking about congestion charges. You know, there, there, there is a huge there is a huge deficit facing Auckland Council in those mm. infrastructure areas. And Phil's interesting in that he's said he wants to take three to five percent spending cuts out of all parts of the council, wherever he can find them. Now, that means he's critical of the council's performance, needs to be more efficient and so on, but you're going to be cutting some things. So you're going to have, and he won't be able to control necessarily, you're going to have some berm issues that come up as things get thrown overboard. And that's going to be interesting the new headlines for the the new year, the berm, (laughs) back to the berm, Todd. Yeah, but there is money that can be cut, and the council is cutting some, but I think that's going to be one of his challenges, is this perception as an outsider that he has is that there's hundreds of millions of dollars sloshing around and they're waiting for him to cut it. He may, you know, he gets through the door for the first time tomorrow. I wonder whether he'll find that it's not necessarily the way he's been portraying it from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Look, the, the council needs to find $1.5 billion just to fund its share of the, the central uh, city rail link. Um, you're not going to get that by cutting a bi-weekly newsletter or getting rid of some web maintenance Or stuff. raising the living wage. <laughs> Which adds $4 million to the cost. Yeah, well, that, that's right. You know, all of these small things add up. And, and you know, it's a bit of, you know, we really did see sort of lazy politicking all the way through yeah. this. There was you a know, lot of posturing, wasn't ev- there? Every, and- everyone's going to provide more services for less money. And actually, I think it's an indictment on the major candidates that actually the 22-year-old Chloe Swarbrick probably did have the best policy platform of any of them. What did you make of Chloe Swarbrick's uh, uh, stance? And she's being very, very coy about uh, where she's going to next, but... Uh, you can you can bet that a couple of parties, maybe the Greens, uh, would have approached her. Hey, what are you doing for next year? Oh, look, I thought she was highly impressive. So on to Chris Trotter said a young Helen Clark. Ah, well, <laughs> who's that a, 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 a compliment to? Um, <laughs> look, I I thought she was really effective, and she was. You're right. She had a most coherent. In front of people, stand up a policy. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to go into national politics? She, she came in to make a very important point and I think made it. But I don't sense that she's someone who sees a life in politics ahead of her. Very, very good indeed. Well, Todd Nile, Ben Thomas and Tim Murthy, thank you very much. And in Wellington, uh, from Insight, Philippa Tolley, thank you for joining Sunday morning this morning. Thank you very much for having me, Wallace. Great to be here.